0: Be sure to our folks, we're not going to uh, upload that online. Yeah? Okay? Good. Um, that video, uh, you know, our brother made that, right? The first video? Amazing. Really good stuff. Um, so, uh, sweet. <laughs> um, all right. I was thinking about uh, the Gospels. Uh, boy, this morning, in fact, I was thinking about the Gospel... Um, these biographical accounts of of Jesus' life, and um, thinking, you know, they're kind of strange when you think about what is the kind of the, the meta narrative. What's a big picture of the gospel? You're trying to explain this to somebody. Um, it, basically, the idea is that um, God says to His Son Jesus, He says, "Listen, um, you've got three years to go down to Earth and create this." structure, this organization, this kind of a system that by the time you leave in three years and you come back here, that organization is going to be ready to change the world, that the world will know who you are. And he's like, you ready? Go. And he sends Jesus down. And he, like uh, our brother said, he lived and he dwelt amongst the people is what Jesus did. He moved into the neighborhood of Israel and he lived and dwelt amongst the people For three years, and for three years, Jesus Christ was constantly busy, but he was never hurried. He was never running around one place to another. In fact, the times when people expected him to be in a rush, he was taking his time, and people were dying on him. Lazarus is sick. He's like, let's wait till he's been dead for four days. This woman, this this little girl is sick, and then all of a sudden, a, a bleeding woman gets in his way, and they come and say, the little girl has died. Jesus, in times where he should have been running around to us, he's just kind of taken his time. And so after this three-year period, what has he done? The first thing he does is he gets 12 people. And not these massive crowds of people. He just gets like 12 ordinary people. Not 12 elite, not 12 rulers, not 12 super talented people. But it's 12 ordinary Joes. And he just hangs out with them for three and a half years. And he just does life together with them. And so by the end of three and a half years, if you're looking from heaven at this mission, you're thinking, wow, we've gotten to the end of it. We're at the last few hours, and this picture doesn't look very good. The 12 guys that have been training, ordinary people, one of them's already committed to selling Jesus out. And you've got 11 other people. Some of them had a little bit of potential, but there's not much actual experience in changing the world. So you've got these 11 people and you've got the 50 million people in the Roman Empire. And so you get down to it. You're looking down from heaven. You're an angel who doesn't know anything. You're looking down from heaven. You're like, wow, it doesn't look like Jesus' mission has been very successful up until this point in time. And so you get to the bottom line, you get to the last few hours, and you think, what is the final lesson that Jesus will give to people whose mission is to change the world? What's going to be the last thing that he does? What is the final lesson that he gives to these people? It's important to know because the lesson actually worked. Eleven people, in fact, the time when Jesus died, there was only one at the cross, one person against 50 million In the Roman Empire, but now on the other side, 2,000 years later, you realize that there's over a billion people that bear the name of Jesus. And when you think of the things that bear the name of Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire, you think of a Caesar salad, or you think of Little Caesar's pizza. Who do you think won that one? what do you think Jesus did? What did he do? What was the final lesson that he would teach his people that would get them to say, aha, and now we're going to go and change the world? Let's look. Matthew 26. Okay, Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. The final thing that Jesus does as he hangs out with all of his gathered disciples before he gets betrayed, arrested, and ultimately condemned and crucified. Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, this is God's word that tells us in the final few hours what Jesus says and does. We saw last week, uh, the Last Supper, they go to the Mount of Olives, verse 31 picks up. Then Jesus told the disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even after I die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is God's word. What is Jesus' final lesson for these disciples whose mission was to go and change the world? And what is his lesson to us? So important, whose mission is the same, for us to go and to transform the world. What is Jesus saying to them? What is Jesus saying to us? Two things, very simple. The first thing is we need to heed the warning because pride comes before the fall. Okay, we need to heed the warning because pride comes before the fall. I don't know uh, how many of you guys have ever been to Epcot before. Uh, If you've ever been to Epcot, there's a ride called Mission Space. Anyone ride Mission Space before? Okay, it's a pretty cool ride. Um, It's a very dangerous ride. They try to simulate the experience of astronauts in space, and so G-Force and all this stuff. There is a warning sign that comes when you get onto Mission Space. In fact, this ride, of all the rides in all the Disney parks, it has more warnings than any other ride, and this is what the warning says. Caution! Exclamation point. You may experience motion sickness on this adventure. Mission space is a realistic and intense simulation of space flight. It is unlike anything you have experienced. Real astronauts often experience motion sickness during space travel. Like astronauts, you may experience motion sickness, nausea, headache, dizziness, disorientation during and after this adventure, even if you have never experienced motion sickness before. You should not ride if you are prone to motion sickness. You may be more likely to experience motion sickness if you have a headache or inner ear problem or a history of migraines, vertigo, or elevated anxiety. Drink water and be well-rested before lunch. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? That's a pretty serious set of warnings. Olivia and I, 2006, the day that we got engaged, April 13, 2006, we went to Epcot, we rode Mission Space. I always talk about this. Olive is a rock. Like, nothing can phase her. Like, physically, she's a rock. She was playing flag football in college, uh, intramural co-ed, boys and girls, and this one frat dude and her were going up for a ball. She outjumped this massive guy, and he fell on her, and his tooth came out and lodged inside of her cheek. And you could still see the scar on her cheek right there. She had a, um, a Band-Aid on her uh, face for a while. They called her Nellie. I don't know if you guys remember Nellie. He had a Band-Aid. We used to call her Nellie. But all is tough. And so I wanted to be tough t- t- also, even though I'm prone to motion sickness. We're standing in line. I counted at least 10 times that warning sign. We got on. We rode Mission Space, and I got dominated. I got utterly destroyed. As soon as we got off of Mission Space, I was like, whoa, I don't feel very good. And outside of mission space lies this bush that I baptized with my vomit (laughs) in April of 2006. It was nasty. It was utterly disgusting. And I said, wow, that was intense. Mission space one, me zero. I lost that one. Colossal fail. What do you do with the warnings of life? The reason these warnings are written, well, some people will doubt them. They're not that bad. Others will deny them. No, I didn't see it. Others will distract themselves from seeing it. Others will deflect it and say, you ought not ride this ride. But the purpose of a warning is so that we could digest it and heed it and understand, is this something that you are in danger of? See, Jesus gives a warning and says, listen, check this out. To all of the disciples, he says, y'all are all going to fall away on account of me tonight, right, tonight, this very night. And then Peter stands up as he's always prone to doing, and he's like, uh, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He's like, listen, Jesus, these other cats, they might fall away, but not me. I'm different, and it's going to be different with me. And Jesus says, well, Peter, that's cool and all, but i tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Okay, not just once, not just twice, but three times. And Peter's like, dude, even if I had to die, I will lay down my life before that happens. It's a pretty bolder mark. And when you think about it, it sounds pretty cool, but Jesus doesn't commend Peter for it. This is not looked upon favorably. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, yo, bro, I'm so, I know these other guys. They don't have it in them, but you do. I'm so thankful you're the faithful and you're loyal. You're my little golden retriever. Thank you, Peter. He doesn't say that. He says, Peter, you better check yourself. You got to be careful. Why is it, why is it that Jesus does not look favorably upon the bravado and the arrogance and the the confidence that Peter demonstrates? Because in other situations, if somebody said, you're going to fail, and he said, no, I'm not, we would praise it. Think about it. If Peter played football, right? Peter was in the Super Bowl, and his team was like the major underdog. No no way, they they had no business being in the Super Bowl, but they made it, and they're like 50-point underdogs right? And everybody says, listen, your team is, is garbage. Your team is not going to win. You, you guys might not even make it past the first quarter. And they're saying all this stuff, and they get onto the field, and, and the other team is chirping and talking smack. Peter then all of a sudden says, listen, he gets his guys in a huddle. He says, I don't care what they say. Not on my watch it's not going to happen. They're not going to come and disrespect us like that. We're grown men. We got families. We got wives. We got children to feed. They're not going to come in and disrespect us like that. We're going to win. In fact, I guarantee a victory. People would praise Peter for that. Yeah, you know what? You know what they call him? They say there's a real leader right there. There's a leader. If Peter, okay, he's not playing football. He's he's working just like all of us. He's got a job at at a company, and they're having a company party, and you have to bring a date. Peter's not married yet, and so he wants to ask this girl, he wants to ask Mary to the dance, to the ball, to the party, whatever it is. And everyone's like, Peter, dude, you don't have a chance with her. Uh, she's a 10 and you're a 3. You don't have a chance. Peter, you're a Galilean. You talk funny. You're a fisherman. You're stupid. You don't have education. She doesn't go for dudes like you. You don't have a chance. This is, what the, this is the stuff of fairy tale romances, isn't it? Peter says, I don't care what you say. I don't care if you say I'm going to fail. I'm going to do it and I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to say I'm going to get the girl and I'm going to take her to the party. People say, oh, that's so, Peter, you're stupid, but we applaud you. So what is it about those situations where it's a commendable for Peter to say, no, 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 I don't care. You guys are calling me, you guys are saying I'm going to fail, but I'm going to say I'm going to do this. What's different about that versus what Jesus is saying? What is it? Jesus was not offering a challenge to Peter. He was issuing a warning. And the purpose of a warning is to tell you that there's something dangerous ahead. You hear a hurricane warning. The purpose of a hurricane warning is not for you to say, okay, okay, 150 mile an hour winds, every house in our block is going to get destroyed, but bring it on. Bring it on. I can handle it. I can handle it. That's not, no, that's stupid. Because a warning was not meant for you to challenge it. So someone tells you you're you're, you're standing on thin ice. It was like 30 30 degrees, 29 degrees, and this lake froze over, like tiny amount of, and and there's warning signs all over. The purpose of a warning sign is not for you to go out there and say, ha-ha, I'm going to ice skate on this and, and see if I can do it. Watch me, watch me, just watch me. That's not, that's foolish. Because what Peter didn't understand was that Jesus wasn't issuing a, war- a challenge. He was issuing a warning. And when we get these two things mixed up, it can lead to a fall. Last night uh, at our youth meeting, uh, some older folks were up here on a panel talking about sharing from past experience about failures in dating relationships. To serve as warnings to those who come behind. The purpose of that warning is not for our seventh graders to say, ah, ha, ha, they messed up, but uh, watch me prove them wrong. That's not the purpose of a warning. You see, when Peter heard from that Super Bowl team, hey, you don't have a chance, something rose up within him. When people, people told Peter, you're never going to get this girl, something rose up within him because he saw that as a challenge. What was it that rises up in a man when we get challenged? What is it that rises up within us? I'll tell you, it's very simple. It's very simple. It's pride. And no man is going to come up to me and tell me that I don't stand a chance against whatever that challenge is and have me say, okay, that's fine, you win. No, that breaks the very every rule of competition and of Competitive pride within a person. Pride will keep a person from just rolling over and say, you're right, you win. What Jesus is saying is, listen, a warning and a challenge are not the same thing. When a warning is issued, the very thing that causes you to think that you can, but that will actually lead to a fall is your pride. Listen, what do you do, guys? What do you do when someone gives you a warning? When you hear the word of God warning you about a certain sin, when you hear people talking about failures in the march to follow Jesus, what do you do? Do you you see that as a challenge? Say, you know what? My faith is strong. That's not going to happen to me. See, Peter's problem was that he boasted too much, he listened too little, and he prayed too little. These are symptomatic of pride, but they're also causes of pride also. Listen, are you boastful? you think you can do it? And my faith is strong enough. Listen, some of us come out of a Daniel fast, and you said it was the greatest spiritual experience you've ever been a part of. I talked to countless people this week who said the fast was great, but I fell hard this week. Some people saying they struggled more with lust than they ever have in the past several months. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, these things were written to us as examples to serve as warnings for us. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. But Peter thought, listen, guys, I can do it. Jesus, these other, these other disciples are going to fall away, but not me. Remember who I am, Jesus. I'm the first one who correctly identified that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember who I am, Jesus. I'm the one who walked on water. None of these other guys did it. I walked on water. I'm spiritually strong. I can do it. In Proverbs 16, 18, Jesus reminds him that pride comes before a fall. The lesson that Jesus was trying to teach to these world changers is, guys, you think you can do it, because you come out of this great spiritual experience. You think you can do it. You think you're not going to fall because people respect you, because you serve in these areas of ministry, because you've been, your feet have been washed and you're a house church shepherd. Listen, if you're a leader, you think you're a leader, people think you're a leader, then all the more we have to crucify the pride within us and live in humility because pride always comes before a fall. And when a challenge comes, it's fine for you to rise up to meet that challenge. But when a warning comes, wisdom dictates that we heed the warning. The first lesson that Jesus is saying is, listen, you need to heed the warning because pride comes before the fall. That's the first thing. The second thing that he says, second thing that he teaches, this is the the, the other thing we're talking about. The second thing that he says, when we fall, we need to know where to go. We need to know where to go when we do fall. Jesus says, verse uh, 32, but af- okay, uh, verse 31, This very night you will all fall away in account of me. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, but after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to fall because you're too proud. Unless you deal with that pride right now, you're going to fall. Jesus isn't locking them into this destiny. saying, listen, if you repent, then this fate will not befall you. But Peter was too proud to hear that. What about us? Are we humble of heart enough to realize that these warnings are not just for the people sitting next to me? This is for me. I'm not strong enough to stand. In fact, in Luke 22, same thing. When Jesus talks about the kind of test that will confront them, it's a test, the the language is an extreme test, a test unlike anything that they've ever faced before. Jesus says to Peter, listen, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat. In other words, what is he saying? Your self-confidence is not going to stand in the day of testing against a supernatural enemy. You cannot lean on yourself. You cannot lean on yourself. And he's saying, you're going to fall if this is the way you continue to live life. And you've got to learn this lesson. If you want to change the world, you've got to learn this lesson. To heed the warnings of Jesus. If you want to be used by him, we have to heed the warning. Because what happens? Peter would go and he would fall. He would fall and he would be at the, at, at the feet of a girl who says, you are with him. And he starts calling down curses on himself and says, no, I, I never knew him. I didn't know him. This Jesus, I don't know who he is. And three times, right right before before that night is even over, Peter's fallen and he's denied Jesus. But the operative thing is failure is inevitable in our lives. But what we do after we fail is going to make all the difference in the world. I don't know if you remember watching this uh, commercial years ago, Michael Jordan commercial, um, and it has him playing basketball. And he says, um, He says something like, "Um, I've missed, I've taken 9,000 shots in my life and missed. I've lost 300 games in my life. 26 times I've had the ball for a game-winning shot, and I missed. And then at the end of all that, he says, and that's why I succeed. It's amazing, and that's why he's the greatest basketball player of all time. Thomas Edison, this great inventor, 10,000 times he tried to come up with or People say different numbers, but 10,000 times he tried to come up with the, the, this light bulb invention, and he failed. And people said, dude, you failed so many times. He said, no, I'm not a, I didn't fail. I just found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. 10,000 ways to not do it. Our response to failure is going to make all the difference in the world, because failure is inevitable. Uh, uh, this week, I was eating breakfast with, with with Rick Terrell and we were just talking. And and the older we get, you know, he's he's in charge of a group of people, of programmers in his in his team, and um, and we're just saying the older we get, okay, There's this delicate balance in, in leadership between letting people fail and then bailing them out for the sake of a bigger picture. Which is what's better for the bigger picture? The more we live life, the more we realize that we have to let people fail. Good parents will let their children fail because it's a part of life. We let them fail under the scaffolding of our watch in order that we might help them to respond to failure in a way that is healthy. Jesus says, listen, you're going to fail. That's the reality, but you know where I'll be. I'm going to be in Galilee, and I'm going to be waiting for you because I have not given up on you. I'll never give up on you. I am the God of second chances, and Jesus is making it clear. When you fail, you got to know where to go. There's two. There's a contrast here between last week and this week. Last week we saw Judas, who had agreed for thirty pieces of silver. Basically, that's the cost to buy a slave that had been gored by an ox, meaning a, a slave. Your slave is killed. He's worthless. 30 pieces of silver is the payment that they give you. And for 30 pieces of silver, for the price of a dead slave, Judas sells Jesus out. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter betrays Jesus. Both of them fail in their time of great testing. Both of them filled with a deep sense of regret, deep sense of remorse, but only one of them moves to repentance. Judas goes and he hangs himself and he dies. But Peter rises, understanding the nature of Jesus, and he goes back to him. Where do you go? Can I ask you, where do you go when you fail? Do you go to a a boyfriend? Do you go to a girlfriend? Where do you go when you fail? Do you go to that addiction in the dark place of your room? I failed already. I might as well go deeper into the abyss. Where do you go? Do you go to... That familiar, oh, that familiar distraction, a video game, a Korean drama, that show on Netflix. You drown yourself in the distraction of comedy on YouTube, of memes. Where do you go when you fail? Because where you go in that place is going to make all the difference in the world. And if you want to change the world, guys, we have to understand Jesus tells them exactly where he's going to be. and the fact that he never gives up on them. I have a friend up, up north, he's a pastor, and he was single and he was dating this gal, and he asked me to to, to pray for him. Um, and this is what he wrote um, for, as he was asking for accountability. He said, My girlfriend and I want to remain physically pure and holy before the day of marriage. Please pray that I seek accountability for my brothers and as the man that I'm able to, to set solid boundaries and not fall into temptation. But here's here's what he wrote, the last thing. However, if I am to fall, that I will confess my sins to my leaders and brothers in the faith. Where do you go when you fall? Where do you go when you fail? But Jesus is saying, this is the most important thing, because no failure is final in the eyes of God. No failure is fatal in the eyes of God. He's the God of second and third and infinite chance if you would go back to him. The very one who can help in our time of greatest need is so often the one from whom we run. We don't think that we can go to him. But Jesus says, come. Because what we do when we fail is the difference between life and and death. Because if we can get that lesson in our failure and our pride can be broken, our self-confidence and self-dependence broken, then we can really begin to do things for the kingdom of God. Can I tell you, one of my greatest ministry fails. About eight years ago, a group of seven of us, including myself, were organizing the youth portion of, a, uh, of an international conference. Thousands of people, Five to 7,000 people were there, and about 3,000 of them were going to be youth students that we were organizing and, and, and speaking to. So before all this happened, uh, we got together in, uh, in, in a city up north, and the seven of us got together to plan out this time, to chart out what we're going to do, the theme, the topic, and all that stuff, and, and then talk about what we're going to say. As we got to that place, I, I remember, I, in fact, this morning I was in my office and I was kind of preparing my heart and I decided to look up notes from that time. And I pulled out my notes from that, that meeting that we were together at. I mean, these guys are, the, are movers and shakers in youth ministry. They're internationally renowned, teaching in seminaries, teaching in, in the major youth ministry think tanks of America. As we got to that place, man, authors and, and I mean, these guys are the big shots, and I remember I read something in in that in that series of notes that one of our uh, one of our leaders said they said we're here because we are i forget exactly the language now, but it said we are gifted because we are great at what we do and we have things to offer to people and then they said, but I say that in you know without trying to sound prideful, but to me it it sounded very prideful, and maybe these guys could say it because they're like big shots, but I definitely i mean I don't know if I could I could have said that, but that's what they said. And so we planned and we prepared, and then we got to this thing, and we were excited, man. We were juiced to get to that place. They got there, man, there's this, this, this very palpable buzz when thousands of people get together to seek the face of God. I remember being in that place, and as we broke up into our youth track, the first day, man, very excited to implement this plan, and it was an absolute and utter train wreck. There are 3,000 people there, but outside of a small radius, maybe like 300 people, the acoustics in the room were so bad that the other 2,700 people could not tell what was going on. It was a colossal failure. And I remember being on stage and people are are doing whatever they're doing. They're not even looking on stage. People start walking out, right? Adult leaders are taking their students out. And if ever I felt like, man, I don't want to do this anymore, it was that day. I've never felt that way until the next day. The next day, about half those people left, about 1,500 people. We scrapped our plan and said, listen, we got to change things. we got to get a video feed in so that people can see what's going on. We need to do all these other things. And we did all these other things, and it was almost just as bad. And again, people started leaving. And they came up to me because they knew I was on stage. And some of these youth pastors were saying, we would rather go to the children's track because we might actually learn something there. I remember that second night of that conference. I was in the worst possible place. I said, I don't ever ever want to stand up on stage again. If, If there was a day I wanted to quit ministry, it was that day. I mean, I was in... And, and all of us were in that place. It wasn't just me. But all of us were like, this is terrible. And as I think back to it, I mean, this was a clear conviction in my heart. I don't know why I didn't say anything, but the clear conviction in my heart both of those days, I thought back to our training, our, our planning meeting six months earlier, and I thought to that time, the seven of us, whenever we got together, I cannot remember a single minute spent praying. And I remember thinking to myself, as I thought about all of these people that were gathered, all of these people on stage, these kingdom movers, I thought, what a fail that was. And that night, before the next day, the guy said, "Hey, the guys and gal said, "Hey, you know DL, why don't you just get up there, scrap all this other stuff? You just get up there and preach." and I said." I said, I said, let me think and pray about it because I was in no place. My mind and my heart was just everywhere. I said, I don't want to do it. It about 3 in the morning. I called the guys. and I said, all right, I'll do it because my reasoning was, listen, I didn't come all the way out here and spend all this time to be here and to come home and go back after this. That I signed up for this because I believe that there's something that God had placed in my heart for a generation to need to hear. And so I said, okay, I don't, do, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I started scribbling some notes down on a piece of paper, and I got up there, and before we did that, though, all morning long and throughout lunch, we fasted, we went into that room, and we prayed, we repented, and we just sought the face of God. So by the time I got up there, there was only like 500 out of 3,000 left. I got up there, and I did the best that I could do, and I don't remember anything about that time, but I am absolutely certain I'm absolutely certain that the work that God did in my heart that day was infinitely more significant than the work that he did in anybody's life in that place. I repented of a sense of self-confidence and and, and pride and self-dependence, and God cracked that and broke that and helped me to realize, man, that you will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, which is the theme of every message that we preach. And it's through that place of failure that God allows his work to be done. It's what we do after we fail that's going to make all the difference in the world. Because here's your reality, here's my reality, here's the reality. A lot of times, what we look at as failure is actually necessary in order for success to be achieved. Michael Jordan had to miss 9,000 shots in order to become the greatest of all time. Thomas Edison had to fail 10,000 times In order to become one of the greatest inventors that the world has known. In fact, the one place in all the world where not only on earth, but even in hell, and maybe amongst the angels in heaven, it looked like there was a failure unlike any, was just hours after Jesus said this, when indeed the shepherd was struck. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, people called him the King of the Jews. They said he would bring in a revolution. He said he would change the world. How much change can happen through a crucified carpenter? Jesus goes up to heaven and the angels are like, Jesus, so how'd it go? Jesus says it went perfectly. This is exactly the way I wanted it. And through the brokenness of the cross, through the brokenness of the disciples, through the brokenness of the world, he says, the story is still being written. Just wait, just wait, and see what I do through these failures and how they're going to change the world. And it's been happening every generation since that time that God has used people who will inevitably fail, but who know where Jesus is. And they go to him, And they fall on their faces and say, Lord, I need you. God, I need you. Every hour, every second, I need you. And it's through these people that the world has never been the same. That's us. It's us. We rise each time we fail because we know where he is. He's with us, the God of second chance. Let's take a moment to pray. Guys, in what ways are you pushing against the warnings of Scripture? What ways are you moving into dangerous territory? Scripture isn't a challenge for us to say it'll be different with me. It's a warning so that you will not fall. Maybe some of you are here for the first time after you've fallen. Maybe some of you have fallen and you don't even want to open your heart up to Jesus. Jesus knew that Peter and the disciples were going to fall. Our failures don't surprise Jesus either. Let's pray. Let's pray to the God of second chance. Let's ask that he would restore and that he would renew us, that he would help us to come back. If there's pride in our hearts, Listen, either God will humble us or we will be humiliated or we can humble ourselves before the Lord and from there be lifted up. Let's take a couple moments right now to pray to the Lord God in response. Just a moment. For just a moment. We're not going to pray for a long time. Let's pray for a moment right now. Really come back to the Lord God. Heed the warning. It won't be different. Don't, Don't Yeah. Let's not excuse ourselves and in, in, in spiritual pride say, I know everyone else failed, but it'll be different with me. Let's come, let's heed, let's experience the joy and peace of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that not only do you know all of our past failures, you're not embarrassed by them. You're not ashamed by them. You're not put off by them. You know the things that we couldn't dare possibly share with anyone else, the the sickening and shameful secrets that we have. Father, you're not afraid to draw near to us in the midst of that. But the beauty of this passage is that not only do you know those things, but you know the sins that we have not even committed yet. You know the ways in which we will fail in the future. And still you tell us, I'm here for you. Never going to leave you. Though you are unfaithful, I will always be faithful. Though you are faithless, I will remain faithful. Teach us, Lord. That we can come to the God of a billion chances. That we can come to the God of all grace. We can come to the God of all compassion. That you know what it is to struggle and be tempted. Because you face the same things, Jesus. And you can empathize with us. And when we fail and we cry, we come to you. You don't run from us. You don't chastise us. You hold us. And you weep with us. You wipe the tears from our face, but not before you taste the salt from our cries. And you teach us to fall on you when we cannot stand. Because Jesus, you are our hope and stay. So help us, Father. Help us to know that we can always come to you. To know that we can always go to you. To know that we can always find mercy and grace and help from you in our times of greatest need so we thank you we need you we need you more than we know awaken us to our need as we give to you and as we sing to you in jesus name we pray amen